You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, uh, one of the pastors I said earlier here at King's Church, and uh, we are continuing in our series in Genesis. We are still in Genesis chapter 2. I don't know if we're ever going to make it out of Genesis 1 and 2, but eventually we will. Uh, There's just so much to uncover that we continue to find uh, just a well of depth and knowledge and things that we can talk about uh, that we think are important to talk about in this life. Now, um, a lot can happen over a cup of coffee. That is the phrase that I placed in the title of a scrapbook that I made Abby on the day that we got engaged. Yes, I was creative and romantic. (laughs) Thank you. There's a lot of meaning in that phrase for us because kind of the first time we hung out, or you could say the first time we had that that DTR conversation, uh, happened at a coffee shop. It happened at a Starbucks, actually, but whatever. We'll call it a coffee shop. Now, there was a problem with this first encounter that we had together, and that was that I didn't drink coffee. So uh, I just thought it was the right thing to do, right? Like, you go to a coffee shop, like, Abby had that kind of, like, cool girl coffee shop vibes to her, so I was like, she's going to be pleased with this. Let's meet up at Starbucks. That'll work. Um, so I, I get ready for this, this meetup that I'm incredibly nervous for, and so I get my shaggy hair, and I swoop it to the side just like I liked it. I put on my nicest PacSun V-neck I had, my Levi skinny jeans, and... Uh, my favorite pair of Toms, okay? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I had to, like, she needed to know I was both stylish and I had a heart. Like, I cared, right? So I had to, I had to wear the Toms. I show up early, and um, there was someone else, a friend there, uh, who, who was there at the, coffee, uh, at the Starbucks. And I expressed to her that I was, I was meeting this girl and uh, that I don't like coffee. Like, what should I order? <laughs> I never tried coffee. I, I didn't know if I liked it or not. And she goes, you should get the Java chip frappuccino. I said, okay. Uh, so, uh, so confidently, Abby, Abby gets there, and, and we walk up, and, and very confidently, I order this Java chip frappuccino like I knew what I was doing. And, um, and I sit down with Abby, and we proceed to talk for about two hours and had just a, a wonderful conversation. All the while, years later, uh, she would tell me that the entire conversation, I had those Java chips stuck in my teeth. Great is thy faithfulness of the Lord to protect her, and uh, she didn't run away from me after that, right? I was really so, so head over heels for this girl that I was willing to drink or eat anything. By the way, I love coffee now and drink it straight black. So only way you can drink coffee. Um, but but I, was, I was so willing to do whatever it took. Drink whatever I needed to drink, eat whatever I needed to eat, just so I could spend time with her. And that was really the beginning of what has now uh, led us to nine years of marriage. And when we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is the first marriage. Uh, the history of marriage, if you will, flows from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we see something very clear in Scripture that God has designed. That Genesis, although it's about so many other things in the beginning, we learn that God had a design and an intent behind the beginning of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The description that we see here of this original marriage based here in Scripture is going to flow then and carry out through the rest of the Bible. And in this text today, even though it's just a few short verses, and we will also see how uh, God takes what he uh, forms here in creation and then how it continues in Scripture. We'll look at other passages today as well. But there are many principles that if we apply, then it will help us understand whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we desire to be married, whether we have no desire to be married, why marriage exists, and for what purpose does it 
exist. And that really leads us to our main idea today, that God is the one who creates marriage. God created marriage. He created it for our good, and he creates it for his glory. Said another way, marriage is a really good thing, and we should see it as a really good thing, but it's a picture, it's a pointer to something much more glorious than just a human connection. It is a pointer. It is going to teach us something much more grand and more glorious in this life about who our God is and our relationship with him. So our outline is going to flow today from the scriptures. We're going to look at five, uh, five principles, five values of marriage from the scriptures. We're going to see that marriage is God's design. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is other-centered. Marriage is intimate. And then finally, marriage is a mystery. And so before we dive into the text, uh, let's just give a little recap of where we are since we are still in Genesis chapter 2. We started the series a few weeks ago talking about the beginning of the book of Genesis, which is uh, written by Moses, the first book of the Bible. And like we said every week, it is really a book about beginnings. It is teaching us about the beginning of the world, of the cosmos as we know it, about our beginnings as human beings, who our creator is, and how and why he created this world. And a few weeks ago, we looked at this passage in Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25, and we talked about how we were created in God's image for relationship, that we're both created to relate to God and have relationship with him and with one another. Now, when we talked about this particular passage a few weeks ago, we did it perhaps in a more broad focus. We looked at how uh, really being made in the image of God for all of us means that we're created with the capacity not only to relate to God, but we have this deep desire and capacity to relate to one another. And that is reflected in how God creates us male and female in his image. But today we're going to look at particularly how God has designed us to function in marriage, why marriage exists, why it's important. Now, I can guarantee everyone in here has a view on marriage. Whether you're married or not, we all have informed views on marriage, opinions about it, a grid in which we filter our thoughts through when we think about the reality of marriage. For instance, if you grew up around a broken or dysfunctional marriage, uh, you might have a particular view of marriage. You might be deeply skeptical about marriage today. Or if you grew up in a home where it was uh, superficially smooth, you might have a, a perhaps too much of a naive uh, po- positivity about marriage, right? Different cultures think slightly different about marriage. And so there are a lot of ways in which we can come into this conversation with our experiences and think about marriage. But from the beginning, what we want to see today is to kind of wipe ourselves clean of our cultures, wipe ourselves clean of our experiences for a moment and think, what is God's perspective on marriage? What has God taught us about this union, this marriage between men, and women. And that's where we start with marriage as God's design. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So from the very beginning, we see very clearly this is something God created. And God defines it for us. 
He defines it with the freedoms that marriage brings and also the boundaries. Now, the reason why we see this clearly from God is that this is something that Adam could not come up with. Adam recognizes finally that he is alone as he's naming the animals. He recognizes there is no one that kind of compliments him in the way that he sees reflected in creation. And so what does God do? Well, God puts him to sleep and God is the one who creates woman. This helper suitable we talked about a few weeks ago, complementary by divine design. And then Adam wakes up and God acts here kind of as the first father giving away a bride in history, right? He doesn't make Adam play hide and seek in the garden to find Eve, right? He brings Eve to Adam. And what does Adam do? He explodes in poetry as he sees this woman in front of him. And here we see the very first marriage. Now, from the beginning, it's clear, marriage is something that God has designed. And then as you continue throughout Scripture, you see that what is designed here in Genesis chapter 2 is reflected in Scripture as this physical union that is spiritual, emotional, it's public, and it's intended to be permanent. In fact, the Bible itself bookends with the idea of marriage. We see Genesis chapter 2, this first marriage between a man and a woman entering in this union, this covenant, and then we go to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the book of Revelation, the final few chapters, and we see another bride, a bride that is beautifully dressed for her husband. She is beautifully prepared and adorned for the bridegroom. And what is this speaking of? It's speaking of the church as the bride and Christ himself as the bridegroom. And again, the reflection there is that it is this everlasting relationship. It's this committed relationship. And then you go in the Old Testament, you see books like Song of Solomon, which unashamedly is passionate about intimacy between a husband and wife. Or you look at a book like Hosea, the prophet Hosea, which is a restorative story about a wife who is unfaithful to her husband in marriage, but the husband is committed to pursuing his wife, and the wife comes back home, which gives a beautiful picture of God's pursuit of his own unfaithful people. But again, even in that, we see the language. One male, one female, committed. And then we go to the New Testament, and we see that perhaps the most premier teaching on marriage is done by a single man who knew more about marriage than anyone but Jesus himself, who was also a single man, and that is Paul. And Paul gives us this premier teaching on marriage in Scripture, where he says, Husbands and wives, you are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and wives, you are to respect your husbands, and husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And again, we see the pattern, one male, one female in a lifetime commitment. And then we get to Matthew 19, and you see Jesus himself teaches on marriage, and he reinstates what is taught here in Genesis chapter 2, showing that he is the Lord who created marriage and reminds us that he is the one who defines it. Now, why is it important for us to start here? Well, let me give you an illustration. Uh, when you're living in your own home, you can abide by your own rules, right? When you're living in your own home, you can do what you want. It's your rules. If you want to take your, your, uh, your drink and put it on the coffee table, you can do that. No one's going to say anything about it. It's your rules, right? But instinctively, when you go into someone else's house, you instinctively try to abide by their rules, right? Before you put your drink down on the coffee table, you look around. Try to see, are these, are these civilized people that use coasters, right? Like, do I need to use one of those, right? What are you doing? You're, you're trying to observe because you're in someone else's home, and therefore you're, you're, you're observing what are their rules. And this is precisely what we're finding here in Genesis chapter 2, that God is the designer of marriage, and so when we think about marriage, when we enter in marriage, when we think about it, when we teach about it, we are getting into something that was invented by God. So we don't come at it and say, well, I'm going to run my marriage my way. We don't come at it and say, well, I'm going to define how I would like to define it. If we do those things, we're going to put ourselves in a lot of trouble. When we enter in marriage, 
we're entering into God's house. It's his institution. It's built his way. To ignore it is to ignore the glorious and good design that he created it to be. So we're not talking about something that's a human invention today. We're not talking about a a Western institution in the laws of this land. We're entering into something that has divine origins today. It was designed by God. And it was designed by God to be a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. He says, therefore a man shall leave his wife. Now, if we were to play a, a round of family feud here for a moment, um, and we were to survey 100 random people in D.C., what are the top five words that come to mind when they think of marriage? Covenant's probably not making the list, right? It's probably not the first thing we're going to think of. Perhaps the first word that we're going to think of is the word love, right? I mean, is it not the first thing we think of when we think of a marriage is love? You know, when, uh, guys, if, if you, if you uh, fall in love with a girl and, uh, and you, your mom asks you what she's going to ask you, do you love her? Right? That's the first thing. Do you love her? It's the first thing we think of instinctively is love. But love is a very complicated word, is it not? Right? I mean, just in one sentence, I can say, I love my wife who makes these divine cookie cakes. Mm, if you know, you know in this room, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tuesdays at 7.30, we have a small group. You can come get one, okay? And I love those cookie cakes, man. They're so good, right? Now, can, can I compare the same level of love I have for my wife to those divine cookie cakes? Right? There's, a, there's a difference. We have to think more concretely. We have to think more uh, uh, concise about what is the, the definition of love as we think of it as it relates to marriage. And it's actually found right here in this idea of covenant, in this Hebrew phrase, to hold fast. Your Bible may say to cleave, right? This idea of cleaving, this idea of holding fast is a poetic description of love, the highest form of love. What, what he's saying here is that it's, it's a covenantal term. It's saying to, be, to cleave, to hold fast to, is to be glued to. In other words, it's a promise, an oath that we make to someone. It's not simply a word that describes that we try our best to hold on to something. Moses says here as he's writing this that this is of the utmost importance, so much so that the Bible teaches that we are to leave the other primary relationships in our life to hold fast to this. That being things like mother and father. It is a promise that takes priority. And when you go to a wedding ceremony, you see this, right? Different wedding ceremonies, even if they have different religious backgrounds or even perhaps even different uh, ceremonial or cultural backgrounds, you see that the, the center of the ceremony is not how we all feel. The center of the ceremony are the promises that they make to each other. The husband and wife, they exchange vows in a very comprehensive way to say, in plenty and want, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, right? Doesn't sound particularly romantic, perhaps, but this is what covenant means. Covenant is looking the person in the eye, holding their hands, and saying, even though there is an uncertain future in our future, I'm going to promise, I'm going to covenant that no matter what, no matter how I feel in the future, I will not let you go. That's what it means to hold fast. This cleaving, this holding fast, this uniting is describing something incredibly important for us. It may not sound very romantic in the moment, but it actually is the key to give us what we all want in marriage, which is a love that is not fleeting, a love that is lasting. Right? Every song that, that you, uh, you kind of uh, hear on the radio that talks about love, it talks about how love is instinctively triggers our mind to think about promises, right? When you first say you love someone, you always want to make these like very sappy promises to them, right? You know, I think of one of my favorite love songs, Boys to Men, I Swear, right? 
Like, I swear by the moon and the stars and the sky, what? I'll be there, right? A promise that, y'all are too young, so y'all already know that song, right? I, I will, I promise, if I love someone, I promise I will be there. It's instinctive for our hearts to say, I promise. But the problem is, when we think of love, perhaps just primarily as a feeling, as an emotion that we have to someone, and that's connected to our promises, then what happens when our love grows cold? What happens when our passion diminishes? Does the promise grow cold as well? Do those promises diminish as well? See, this is why holding fast cleaving is so important when we think about marriage, because it is a promise that lasts. It is the key to having passion in a marriage. Because even when we don't feel like it, we remind ourselves that we've made a commitment, a covenant that is for our future, not just in the moment. Which is why when people say things like, well, do I have to get married to love someone? Do I have to, do I have to really like, show this piece of paper to love them? Like, is that necessary that I do this? What they're really saying deep down is that I have such a strong feeling of love for this person. Why do I have to make a commitment right now? Oh, why do I have to do that? I, I love them, right? But we all know like, our passions are going to fade at times for people. Our, 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 our feelings, we can't trust those things, right? And what we're basically doing, when we lead with our feelings, we're robbing ourselves of unconditional love. What we're saying in those moments, if we don't understand marriage as a covenant, if we just primarily understand it, it's just like it's a feel good, it's an emotion, it's something that we just, we feel like in the moment, it's saying, I, I don't really feel like I love you enough to commit to you in the future. It's saying, I want to leave my options open. It's saying, surely I'll, I, you know, I'll have sex with you, I'll live with you, I'll travel together, but I don't want to get married because I don't know what the future holds and I don't love you enough to commit to that. But a covenant, a covenant says, no, you don't have to have that unstable certainty and an unstable relationship that actually kills your ability to have true promises. No, a covenant says that promises we make to one another means that we can be naked and unashamed. Because the promises we make to one another, we can be fully known and fully known and fully loved. You see, covenant, the idea of a marriage as a covenant, is actually what frees us. It doesn't restrict our freedom. It is actually what frees us to not be mastered by the passions that were within us. To not be mastered by the feelings that change on a whim. To be mastered by the pressures of a culture. The freedom that comes from a covenant, from a promise, is how we can look someone in the eye who is imperfect just like we are and say, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, no matter what comes, I will never ever leave you nor forsake you. I'm holding fast. I'm cleaving to you. That is the design from Genesis chapter 2 of marriage. It's a covenant. But marriage is also other-centered. Verse 23, as the man wakes up from his nap that God put him under, The man said, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now we said this a few weeks ago that immediately when Adam wakes up, he looks at the woman and his response is other focused. It's other oriented, right? He looks at her and instead of singing poetry about his own glory, basking in his own glory, he begins to sing very passionately, poetically, romantically, and honestly, because the focus was on her. It was selflessness, not self-absorption from the very beginning. And the rest of the Bible kind of picks up on this theme. Now, in, in our culture, we, we struggle with this. I, 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 I feel it in my own heart, I struggle with this, this idea of being other-centered, right? Even when we think about the rom-coms that we watch, all of them kind of end with this, oh, you complete me mentality, right? 
That there's this one person out there that we're going to meet one day, and they're going to satisfy our loneliness, and they're going to completely complete us. And that is how oftentimes we think of marriage and relationships. But that's a distortion of reality. Because there is no perfect person in this world. And if we create the mindset that there's going to be a perfect person who will be my type, what we're actually doing is we're saying, well, I actually just don't want someone who's going to change me or challenge me. You know what I mean when I say I want someone who completes me? I want someone who helps me look better. Perhaps someone who will give me a little bit more dose of income or a little bit more fun. But I don't want someone to change me. I don't want someone to challenge me. It sounds like a great method, except for one major problem, that we're all messed up, <laughs> right? That we, none of us are anyone's perfect type. We all have flaws. And oftentimes we're so blinded by our own imperfections that there is no perfect person who will ever complete you. That's why when you think of marriage, we look at it sometimes naively and say, oh, these people are perfect, right? Abby and Wesley, they seem normal, right? We only seem normal because you don't know us very well, right? <laughs> I think a standard question we should probably ask on, on our dates now is, how are you crazy too, right? Like, 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 I'm crazy. How are you crazy? Let's just get to the bottom of it, right? We're, we're messy, you know? But we don't do that, right? And it's not reality. We look for this, this one person, our type. And what we do is we create a fantasy, a fantasy and culture that is both created by the romanticized culture that we live in, but I think even perhaps more distorted is, is created by the pornographic culture we live in. Because it's a culture that we can have the perfect type of person we want and that never challenges us and we can click it off the screen immediately. Never challenges, never changes us. We never have to work towards being other-centered. We could be self-absorption in our relationships. And what that does is, is when you get into a relationship with someone, what that type of mentality does is immediately when that other person uh, doesn't actually fulfill what you are wanting, when you realize that that person is not perfect and you have that first fight, you begin to panic, right? You say, oh, this isn't going to work out. This isn't going to work out for me. But God is so realistic about our human condition in the scriptures, right? He is so realistic about who we are. That's why he says marriage was never intended to meet our needs, but marriage was intended for us to serve another. Because it's a reflection of what Christ did for us. That Christ is the one who washes us and who cleanses us, and who draws us into, into this inner beauty of relationship with him. He is the one who does that as our groom. He serves us as the bride. And that's why Paul picks up on this idea that marriage is other-centered in Ephesians 5 with his famous words. And he says, if we're going to rightly understand this, we have to understand that to be other-centered means when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're thinking of the other first and not ourselves. We're serving the other first and not ourselves. And he says, wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and itself, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. 
Now, I'm sure the, the Ephesians who are reading this probably thought the exact same, we, the exact same things we probably think we read this. We come to it and say, well, these, these concepts of submission and headship, like, aren't those ancient things, right? Aren't those things long ago? Right? We're, we're in a, a more modern culture, Paul, but what Paul's signifying here is that there's actually timeless truths that point to a greater reality. They're actually teaching us something much bigger than ourselves. And he says, before we even get started here, the way we view this, the way we think about this, is not through the lens of our pride and selfishness. We think of it by submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. We think of these concepts like headship and, and, and submission when we think about how we're supposed to mirror Jesus to one another. And he begins to write, and he spills a lot of ink on the men here and their role. As reflected in creation, he says, guys, you're supposed to be like Jesus. What does Jesus do? He died. He said, you got to live other-centered in this way. Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You think, what does this mean? What does it mean that we have this role of headship? Well, John 17 kind of gives us a clear indication of what this looks like. The day before Jesus died, his disciples were discussing his authoritative title of Lord, the fact that he is Lord. And you know what Jesus is doing in the midst? He gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. That is a job for the lowest of servants. No one in the household would do that. And yet Jesus does that. And what he models for us is headship. What he models for us is what servant leadership looks like. You want to know how to be other-centered in marriage? Husbands, serve your wife like that. Serve them like that. Serve them in a way that's so comprehensive, so broad, so long, so high, so deep, that it includes that depth of service, that it's not about you, it's about the other. And the goal of this is kind of like what, what a sculptor does, Right? As Michelangelo, he, he was a genius, right? This guy would look at stone, and he would take a hammer and a chisel, and he would start chiseling away. And in his mind, he could see the inner beauty before it was in its fullest form. And as he chiseled away, as he chiseled away, as he chiseled away, eventually, boom, we get the statue of David, right? This, this beauty that comes out of somewhere in his core. And that's precisely what we do in marriage. We take a hammer and a chisel with one another, and we don't use those for harm, to, to hammer over each other, to chisel each other too, too harm, harmful, right? We take those very, very things and we use them as tools to serve one another because we know there's an inner beauty in one another that Christ says one day will be fully revealed when he comes back. And so we're other-centered, trying to draw that inner beauty that Christ has placed in our lives in marriage. And then we see that marriage is also intimate. It's intimate. Verse 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Later in the Gospels, Jesus would add to this, and he would say in Matthew 19, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, if we're going to rightly understand intimacy, we need not to look any further than how God has created us. Just as one, he created us male and female to interact in marriage. And we said a few weeks ago that God, in his creation, he has created us, male and female, both equally in his image, yet complementary by design, divine design. And here God is displaying that in intimacy in what's called a one flesh union. Now, the term here is really crucial to our understanding. He says one flesh. So we think about biblical sexuality. One flesh speaks more than just an emotional or relational bond here. This includes those things but he's emphasizing the physical nature of marriage. 
He's saying in marriage, there's like interlocking pieces of a puzzle. The oneness of sexual union celebrates God's design as male and female. In other words, biblical sexuality celebrates anatomy, how God has designed us to be this one flesh union. Not just one heart, not just one mind, not just two people coming together on one journey, not just two people living in one home, one flesh. It's a comprehensive union between two people, not just mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, but bodily as well. The language here is meant to emphasize this, that when we enter marriage, there is a union within our physical bodies in which we see the pleasure of intimacy in knowing one another, and also the unique purpose as God designed and called us to in Genesis chapter 1 of procreation to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is important for us to understand how God has designed this to happen, sex, intimacy with one another, and the permanence of a covenant of marriage. Because our view on this has some very serious and sensitive implications for us all. And I just want to list two. First, it means we need to take seriously any form of sexual activity that occurs outside of a one flesh union. It means we need to take seriously any form of sexual activity that occurs outside of the context of a one flesh union. We need to see these as sinful, as out of God's design. Sexual intimacy is, is a powerful force for good in marriage. It is an absolutely powerful force for good, but it is also an incredibly harmful force outside of marriage. It means premarital sex, cohabitation, pornography, adultery, none of these things are within God's good design and purpose for sexuality. Now, I say this understanding that we live in a fallen world, which means that sin touches every part of us including sexuality, including the way we have handled that in our lives. And I just want to say from, from the beginning as I talk about this, that none of us in this room have stewarded perfectly our sexuality. This is an area that as we think about it, we need to be honest, honest with God about our bodies. We need to be honest with a few trusted brothers and sisters about what we do. We need to be honest and seek God's forgiveness, his healing, and his guidance. There's not room for pride when we talk about this. We're not here to boast. There's a lot of room for humility. God says his word, he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to us, even when we make mistakes, and we fall short in this area. Now, secondly, I think it's important that we don't swing the pendulum too far. What I mean by that, knowing that we live in a sexualized culture, it doesn't mean that we diminish what God intends for us to celebrate. That God has designed marriage as a place for sexual fulfillment and pleasure. It is a good thing. It is not something taboo. It is not something that we should look down upon. It is meant to be the place where men and women enter a covenant where they can be their full selves with one another, completely exposed and not rejected, unashamed and naked. The Bible speaks very plainly about this. Proverbs 5. I'm not going to, there's children in the house today, so I'm not going to say it, but it's very, it's, it's pretty erotic actually about how uh, the Bible describes pleasure within the intimacy of marriage. And then you've got the Song of Solomon, which is eight chapters filled with God-honoring sexual pleasure that happens in the marriage bed. We don't need to downplay intimacy. It is a right and good thing, but we need to see that it can also be a harmful thing outside of marriage. And again, if this is an area that you've struggled with, if this is an area that you're currently struggling with, I want you to know that that none of us in here are are damaged goods. 
None of us in here are lesser than another because we've made mistakes in our past. God reminds us in Scripture time and time again that he is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. He reminds us time and time again that he is the one who can heal us from all broken relationships, from all distortions of his good creation. And if you have fallen into that, if you have struggled with that, if you have a painful past, I want you to know that we're not here to condemn anyone, but to showcase the love of God for you. He is there to meet you with mercy and grace. But let us not excuse what God meant for good in marriage and abuse it as well. He meant to be intimate, he meant it to be good, and he meant it to happen in a marriage relationship. And then finally, marriage is a mystery. Ephesians chapter 5 quotes Genesis chapter 2, and right after he quotes Genesis chapter 2, he says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul comes to his conclusion here, and he says that, hey guys, this human marriage that we talk about today, as God's divine design, this covenant, this intimate relationship, uh, this other-centered, service-oriented relationship, it all points to Jesus. In the end, it is a pointer to the gospel. It is this deep, profound mystery of Christ and his sacrifice for us. That in Christ, he is the one who meets our needs and his love is for us. And it's not primarily about a human relationship. And so it's important for us to see where marriage is pointing us so that we can rightly think about marriage. Because the temptation oftentimes when people preach or teach on marriage is for us to actually begin to idolize marriage, to uphold it too high, to think of it as something ideal that we should all strive for that will complete us one day. But Paul says, no, the mystery is that this actually points to what is truly going to complete us and is completing us, that it points to what truly matters in this life, the intimacy that we can all experience that is far greater than anything else, and that is our relationship with Jesus. And so I just want to end with three applications of how the mystery of marriage helps us as a reminder to have marriage in a right focus today, Okay. The first is the, mar- the mystery of marriage reminds us of our identity. The mystery of marriage reminds us of our identity, meaning it reminds us that we are accepted by God on the fact that he loves us, not a function of our social status or our marital status or our virtues. It's an understanding that we don't deserve his love for us, but he died for us, that he is the one who declares us righteous, that our primary identity is not in our status in a marriage or single, but is that we are equally loved and valued by God, that we experience his unconditional love poured out for us, the promises of scripture that he has covenanted to to never let us go. And this radically changed the social hierarchy of the first century when it it, uh, was related to marriage and society. Because in the first century, as still true of many traditional cultures, if someone was not married in their adulthood, if they were single, they were actually looked down upon as a second-class citizen. But then comes along the mystery of the gospel. And for the first time in Christianity, through Christianity, we see single men and women who are honored and who are given responsibilities and are not pressured to get married. Why? Because they weren't defined by being married or single. Their identity was in their ultimate marriage to Christ. 
And one of the things that can really work against the type of community we want to be here at King's Church is, is what some churches have the tendency to do, is to push up and uphold marriage as some sign of superior relationship. To divide those who are married and who are not. To perhaps make those who are widowed, divorced, singled, or young feel inferior. But the gospel, the mystery of the gospel says there is no truth to that. And it should not be true here as well. So we have to root this in our hearts to remind us of our primary identity so that we don't idolize one season of life greater than another. The mystery of marriage also reminds us of our mission. It reminds us of our mission in this life. When Jesus came, he said that he, the kingdom of God is here. And then he tells us as he ascends into heaven that one day he will return. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper. That's a reminder that we're waiting for our groom. He is on his way. He is going to return. But there is still work to be done. And he reminds us that time and time in Scripture, there's work to be done that we form ourselves in the image of our Creator. How does this help us? Well, it reminds us that no matter if we're single or married, our ultimate reality is that we're married to Jesus, which means every part of our life is in service to Him. Every part of our life is in service to Him in His kingdom coming to earth as is in heaven. That's why Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he actually tells those who are married, he says, live as if you're not. Why would he say that? Because he recognizes that the time is, is short. Jesus will return. And we are to live our lives seeking first the kingdom of God, married or unmarried. We have to remind ourselves that, that whether we're obsessed about getting married here today or we're obsessed in our marriage, that our desire to be married or our marriage is a gift from God to serve him, not to complete us. The mission reminds us to be other-centered, to serve him as our ultimate groom, to seek first the kingdom of God. And then finally, the mystery of marriage reminds us of our future hope. It's future-oriented. It reminds us of our future hope. Marriage is a pointer to something we get to look forward to. It is not the pinnacle. It is a pointer, not the pinnacle. It is pointing to something very great that we get to look forward to one day. But if we idolize marriage and we see it as the ultimate reality, if we set it as the pinnacle of our lives, then inevitably what we're going to do is we're going to place expectations on our spouse or on our future spouse that they cannot fulfill. We will make them our God. And we will leave no room, no capacity to actually experience forgiveness or grace and pleasure in this life. Because when Jesus, when he went to the cross, he didn't say to us, if you don't uphold your bargain of the deal, then I'm not going to uphold mine, right? When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't say, just because you've committed spiritual adultery, uh, this isn't going to work out, I'm going to leave. Why did Jesus stay on the cross? Because he loves us. Simply that. He didn't stay on the cross because we're beautiful. He stayed on the cross to make us beautiful. And we understand this type of forgiveness. And we understand that this, this is what marriage is built on. It's not the pinnacle. It points to the ultimate reality. And that is what gives us the distance we need from our spouse to see them not as the pinnacle of life, but as a pointer to who God is. They are not our God. Nor should we place expectations for them to be. The resources God has given us in this life is to love unconditionally, to forgive, to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, to see marriage rightly as a pointer. Yes, it's good. Yes, it's a gift from God, but that is what it is. It is not ultimate reality. It is not the pinnacle. It is the pointer to something greater. Psalm 16 actually teaches us this as well. It says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. 
In whose presence? In God's. At your right hand are pleasures for more. Who is at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. Jesus is the pleasure center. He is the ultimate source of joy and pleasure in this life. And he is the one who provides it for good things like marriage, but he is the destiny of our greatest pleasure that we will ever enjoy. He is the final destiny. It is pointing to the future hope that we have in him. So we need not to idolize marriage as the pinnacle of this life that we've made it if we get married, but see it rightly as a pointer to Christ himself. He is the final destiny. And by God's mercy, he is holding fast to us. He has united himself to us. And so as we come to the Lord's table here, we have the opportunity to run to our groom. Man, he loves us. Just like when you go to a wedding and the bride comes and everybody's eyes are focused on the bride one day, Jesus is preparing a moment where he will focus on his bride and adore her in a way that has never been done before. That cannot be replicated in any beautiful wedding ceremony on this earth. And that is the day we experience the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is what these tiny little bites of bread and this tiny sip of of wine point us to. The pointer to that ultimate reality that one day we will dine with Jesus and he will fulfill that promise that he would never, ever leave us nor forsake his bride. He is keeping us into that moment where we will rejoice and exalt and give him glory because we have arrived at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we as the bride will come to him and we will be clothed in clothes that are not matched in this earth with fine linen, bright and pure. And we will sit down and we will enjoy a blessing in which the angels in Revelation say, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is what the future hope marriage points to. And today you can receive that. Today you can know that love. Today you can have the intimacy and the the commitment, the union that God has with us. He, our groom, we, his bride. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.